Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fifth week of our series, Who Do You Say I Am? This message comes from Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we are looking at Matthew and looking at the section in Matthew, where it's really this key central question, who do you say that I am? And, and if you know who Jesus is, what difference does that make to your life? So this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn it, open it, and open it to that part. Keep it open throughout our time so you can follow along uh, in the text where those points come from throughout the message. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. We'd invite you to use that. But let me begin by reading this passage, Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and and, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to come together this morning. Father, to be able to worship, to celebrate what you're doing. Father, now to be able to dive into your word. I thank you that you give us your word that is living and that is powerful, that that speaks truth to life. And Father, I thank you for what you're teaching me. And I pray that you get me out of the way and that you use me speaking through me in spite of me to communicate your timeless truth to each one of us here today, that we would hear from you Father, I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage we read just a moment ago, uh, we see this event about this man and this, this son and, and uh, the, the demon possession, and they couldn't cast him out. And we're told that this event happened not only here, but also in Mark, also in the Gospel of Luke. And all three of the Gospels tell us that this event happened right after Mount Transfiguration. That's what we looked at last week or two weeks ago in the beginning of Matthew 17. And so we're told that Jesus comes down from the mountain, you know, after this incredible experience and you have this crowd that is there and this, this man with this tragic need with his young son. All of the Gospels connect the Mount of Transfiguration with this event showing us that this isn't necessarily a new story, but it's a continuation. There's a thought that is connected here. On the mountain, the disciples had experienced Jesus' transfiguration. They'd experienced this incredible experience with God, and they wanted to keep that experience going. But now they come down from the mountain, and they're greeted with the demands and messiness and brokenness of life. I think many of us can relate to times where we have some kind of great experience and we want to keep it going. You know, it might be spiritually. We go on a retreat. We have this experience with God or, boy, the devotions are going well. We just, we sense God's presence. Or maybe it's just life in general. You know, we feel like we've gotten into that groove of life and we want to keep that going. And we have this season of blessing and we have these incredible hopes that the blessings will continue only to run into the harsh dose of reality. There's a clip from the third Toy Story movie that I think illustrates this idea well. If you don't know about the Toy Story movies, they're about these toys um, that come alive when no one's playing with them. 
And so that's the main characters. And in this case, the main characters, Toy Story 3, they're, they're facing a crisis. Their owner, a boy named Andy, has grown up and he's going to college. He hasn't been playing with them for years. And they end up being donated to the Sunnyside Preschool. Now, their first impression of the preschool is that this is going to be wonderful. You know, it's Toy Evan. All the kids are going to play with them. It looks like this perfect place. And so based on this, they have incredible expectations. Even to set up the, the scene, let me give you just a close, short clip of, of kind of what they expect. Here's where you folks will be staying. The Caterpillar Room. But this place. Wow. Holy, holy, look at moly. Jackpot, baby. Whoa. Hello. 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 It's so beautiful. What? Come on. Hold on, guy. How long has it been since you all got played with? It's been years. Well, just you wait. In a few minutes, that bell's gonna ring and you'll get the playtime that you've been dreaming of. Play! Real play! I can't wait! Now, if you'll excuse us, we'd best be heading back. Welcome to Sunnyside, folks. So here they see the mountaintop and, and they have an expectation. They're gonna be played with, they're gonna get loved, it's gonna be wonderful. But then reality quickly sets in as they learn that not all preschool rooms play with their toys in the same loving way. Oh, speaking of playtime, they're lining up out there. How many? There must be dozens. <laughs> I can hardly wait. Places, everyone. <laughs> Surprise. Oh. At last, until we get played with. Uh, Rex? Can we get Papa? I don't know about you, but I can kind of relate to some of that. You know, it's not only having preschoolers and remembering what that's like, but sometimes in life you kind of have this expectation. You expect the mountaintop and that it's, you know, that's just the reality of life. Life hits, and you've got all these chores to do. You have kids, and they're demanding your attention. Money is tight, and suddenly you get a big bill. And, and you know, spiritually, you feel temptations all around you, and, and the mountaintop is all but forgotten. And the challenge is, how can we take what we learn from God in the mountaintop experience and then translate it and apply it to the demands of the mess of life, the brokenness of everyday life? Well, two weeks ago, we began looking at um, uh, the whole story of what's called the transfiguration. And, and Jesus had taken two, uh, three of his disciples up on this mountain, and there they have this incredible experience of God and of his glory. We read in Matthew 17 too, uh, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. When it says he's transfigured, his physical appearance changed. So his, you know, his face was glowing from the inside out like the sun itself. His light, when it says that his clothes became white as light, it could, it could be translated, they were flashing like lightning. 
And what was happening for this brief moment, in a sense, Jesus shed off the limits of his earthly body and he began to show his true glory for who he was as eternal God. And, and while the disciples are overwhelmed with this, still trying to understand it, we're told in, in the next verse, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And, and again, I can only begin to imagine what Peter and James and John are thinking and feeling as they see this happening. To say that it was shocking and, and overwhelming would be an understatement. How do you respond? How do you respond to this? You know, if we look at it, what we see is that their understanding of it, their response, even, even the faith that flowed out of it, were all flawed. They didn't get it quite right. See, Peter's reaction is probably not the best response. We, we read here, you know, that actually Luke tells us he didn't think about what he was saying. He feels the need to say something, which always isn't a good idea. So he kind of blurts out uh, in verse 4. And Peter said, Lord, it is, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. In other words, he says, you know, hey, Jesus, what we're going to do is we're going to set up three tents so that, you know, Moses and Elijah, y'all could come and meet here more often and we can hang out and have this experience again and, and again and again. He had seen the unveiled glory of Jesus. Man, I want that. And you know what? I can't blame him for desiring to stay up on that mountaintop. And, and there are times that we look at it and sometimes we think that this is the height of faith. And so what we want to do is we want to go back and have that experience. We want to have a faith that's defined by experience or, or, or retreat from the world. And it's not only Peter that is seeking this. What's interesting is that if you study through church history, there are whole movements of the church that were really defined by people seeking exactly this, seeking to find the glory of the mountain and escape from the world and just go live in that experience. A great example of that, you know, the whole monastic movement. Have you ever wondered why a man or a woman would give up everything and, and take a vow of poverty and go live in some remote place in a monastery and why would they do that? Well, ultimately, for most, it was seeking to try to, to find this experience. You know, I want to go to a place where I'm on the mountaintop with God, if I can get away from everything else and have this spiritual experience. It's a retreat from the world to focus on God. Monastic leaders have talked about how it's the highest and purest form of Christian purity, or piety and virtue. Now, you might think, I'm never going to be a monk. But there might be part of us that says, man, if I could just retreat, get away from the world, that would be the ideal. But here's a question, not only for the monks, but for all of us. Does God call us to do that? Does God call us to seek to retreat from the world and find, go live on the mountaintop where we could experience him? No. Now, there are times that we see the Bible talks about religious experiences, but it never calls us to run away from the world to pursue them. What we, when, when God reveals himself in a powerful way, and whether it's a church service or just in our own private life or, you know, it's a, a retreat or something, that's wonderful and it's worth pursuing, it's worth desiring. But what we see the Bible call us to is that God wants us to not retreat to find his glory. He wants us to have the experience of his glory and then bring that glory into everyday life. In Matthew 5, Jesus talked to his disciples and he said, you are the light of the world. You know, we are to be his light, but in the same way, let your light shine before others who were to, in a sense, bring the glory of God into the darkness of the world. So let's go back to Matthew 17 and see how this plays out. See, Peter wanted to set up these various tents where they could go back and dwell in that experience. And Jesus not only fails to embrace that idea, 
but that while Peter is speaking, while Peter is saying, here's what we should do, God the Father himself literally comes down, reveals himself in glory, and we're told that, the, that this, uh, this cloud overshadowed them, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Basically, God the Father himself is saying, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Just shut up. You know, just listen to Jesus, do what he says. And what did Jesus do? He didn't say, let's stay on the mountaintop. You know, let's go back here. Instead, we read in verse 9 that he brought them down off the mountain back to where the crowds of the people were waiting for them. But and when we look at this, we see the spiritual high, and he brings them back into the turmoil of life. And not only that, but they're met with something that couldn't have been a more dramatic contradiction. Um, see, they're coming from the spiritual experience, and they walk in, and they f- face this heartbreaking case of demon possession, of a, of a boy that is controlled by a demon, that is, has convulsions, throwing himself into the fire. If you have your Bibles open, look at verses 14 and 15. And when they came to the crowd, a man came to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, Mark, when you look at Mark and Luke's account of the same thing, they make it clear that this was the man's only son, a young boy, that he had an unclean spirit that would cause him to not only go into convulsions, to form, foam at the mouth, throw himself into the fire. You know, this, this tragic situation. Now, if we look at verse 16, he comes asking Jesus for help, and then he tells Jesus, I brought him, meaning my son, to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You know, they tried, but they failed. The disciples, despite their confident mountaintop experience in you know, seeing Jesus in all their glory, now failed to deal with the Spirit. They tried, but it didn't work. And we've got to ask, what's going on here? Now, again, remember, some of the, a couple of the disciples had just had this incredible experience. They'd been on the glory on the mountaintop with God, and they come down and they're met with this, you know, this need of this man asking for help with his son. And, and if, think about what happened here. And I think what happened is that this man comes to looking for Jesus, and first of all, he comes to the disciples. And he, he looks to the disciples and he says, I've got this need, I want to bring my son. And, and basically, the disciples are like, oh, we can take care of it. You know, you don't need Jesus, we'll take care of it. And only after they tried and they failed, does he insist on going directly to Jesus for help. And again, when he says, yeah, I brought him to the disciples and they could not. And then we're told that Jesus responds. And when I read this, I can't, imagine anything but frustration. Verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now we have to ask, who's he frustrated with? What's the problem going on? Why did they fail? And, And the answer is right here in the passage. Because if you look at verse 19, they come and they ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus responds, because of your little faith. But if you think about it, when you read this story, it doesn't look like they had a little faith. It, it, it's not what you'd expect a little faith to look like. Because what happened is you think if somebody's a little faith, they're going to be hesitant. They're going to be like, oh, here's a need. Well, we don't know if God could do it. We don't know. We're, we're going to wait. We're, we're afraid to step out. But they're confident. They're so confident that when the man comes, they're like, hey, you know, no need to wait for Jesus. We can take care of it. Jesus says that the problem was a lack of faith. But there seemed to be some faith here. If they didn't have faith, they wouldn't have tried to heal him. So the problem was a faith. It was a wrong kind of faith. It was a faith that was rooted in not in confidence in God, but in the confidence in themselves. So why? They became confident in their own ability. 
they, they, in a sense, were confident, we can take care of this. And so they come out and they try to heal him. Now, that might look like a strong faith to some, but the problem was the focus of their faith. The focus was on themselves, on their ability. And again, look at verses 19 to 20. It says, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, because of a lack of faith. So then we have to ask, well, if they tried, they had some faith, what did they have faith in? And I think the answer is they had faith in themselves, faith in their ability. You know, they tried to do it, and, and it wasn't until they failed that they finally come back and said, hey, we need help. They, I believe they were convinced in their ability to heal the boy. But because if you go back to Matthew 10, Jesus had given them authority to heal. And, and now some of them had this spiritual mountaintop experience. They had seen Jesus in all his glory. And now they're coming and they're saying, he's coming, we need help. And they're saying, oh, let's not bother Jesus. We can take care of it. And they missed the point of the transfiguration. It was all about God's glory that was revealed. It wasn't about who they were and their glory and that they were special because they got to see it. It was God's glory. It was about God's power. It, was, it wasn't about their ability. It was about what God can do. See, the problem is too often we can have too much faith in ourselves, which keeps us from really having true faith in Jesus. Their failure wasn't in that they didn't try. No, they did try. They did their best. The problem is that they had subtly moved from faith and trust in God to faith and trust in themselves. In Mark's account of the same story, uh, we see that Mark makes this even more clear. He, Mark tells us the disciples came to Jesus and asked why they failed, and Jesus' response was, you should have prayed. You should have prayed. You should have showed dependence on me. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute of what God is calling us to here. But what I want you to see is that there's a, there's a danger of being self-reliant, having the wrong kind of faith, the, things, the kind of faith that thinks we can do it on our own. And when are we susceptible to that? I think we're susceptible to that when things are going well, when we have a spiritual high, when we're, things, you know, we, we're feeling like, man, we're walking with God, but things are great. Think about it this way. Most of us here have had times where we've had some kind of crisis, right? There's some kind of need, something that is desperate. Some, and what happens when we're in desperate need? We pray. We know that we need God. We, we pray for God to intervene. We pray for his healing. We pray for him to work in the life of our family. We pray for him to heal relationships. And, and we now know that when we're broken, there's a need. But sometimes when we have a success, man, I'm walking with God. I'm, I'm, I have this experience. We can think we've got it. And we don't depend as much. I think what Paul says about this in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he dealt with a need, a thorn in his flesh, some kind of physical problem, and how he pled with God that God would heal from him, heal him from that. And then he responds, but he, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul continues, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And he's saying it was in my weakness. It wasn't my strength. It wasn't my, in my uh, accomplishments. It was in my struggle. And then he continues in verse 10, for the sake of Christ that I am content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecution, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, the challenge is sometimes we can turn that around and say, when we think we are strong, then we are weak. 
And that's the challenge that we have, is that we can go up on the mountaintops and we can think we're strong and we're experiencing God and we're experiencing that season of blessing. We'll become less and less reliant on God because we think we're strong and then we're weak. And God says, okay, sometimes I'm going to break you when you're weak and I'm, then you're going to find my strength. The challenge is how can we find that strength even when we're experiencing the season of blessing? Now we see the flawed faith of the disciples here, but now let's go back and see that even in this passage, you see some good pictures of the kind of faith that God calls us to, some characteristics of a right biblical faith. Now, if the failure of faith is seen in the disciples, I think the picture of the right faith is illustrated by the Father. And the, and the faith here is, it's really beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. And, and think about the story. Here you have this, this man who has an incredible need, and he makes, you know, he comes to Christ, he makes a request to the disciples, to Jesus' followers. Ostensibly, they represent Jesus. They have his power, and, 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 and they tell him, sure, we can take care of it, and they fail. But what happens? I think he could have been tempted to say, and this whole thing, Jesus, it's all a fraud, and he can walk away. Why? Because the followers have failed. He might have done that, but that's not what he did. What he did is instead, is he realized that his faith was in Jesus. And that allowed him to look beyond the followers of Jesus and to fix his faith on Jesus himself. This is a huge concept. It's so important, and it's a place where so many people will struggle. See, as followers of Christ, yes, we do want to be like Jesus. We're to seek to be representatives of Jesus. We're to represent him in our world. I mean, I think about how what Jesus talks about in, in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light. But yet, at the same point, we saw a few minutes ago in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Now you say, wait a second, is it Jesus or us? Well, even in the picture of transfiguration, we have the picture. What was it? Jesus shone like the light. His son, it came from within him. That's his glory. That's who he is. He is the source of glory. He is the source of truth. That is who he is. It's from who he is. It's inside. He's like the sun. Now, we as followers of Christ are like the moon. I don't have any glory even myself but I hope to become closer and closer to the sun so I reflect his glory so that you see who he is as a reflection. And what should that look like? Well, Jesus continues in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That we're to call, let it shine, reflect Christ, not only through our words so that we're communicating the light of his truth that the world needs, but also through the light of our actions that our behavior is being increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But the problem is, this side of eternity, none of us reflect Jesus perfectly. We're all sinners who are in the process of being conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. Now, my desire as a follower of Christ is I want to look like him. I want to reflect him in my life. But at best, I'm a very flawed and imperfect copy. I hope I'm getting better. And, and the fact is, my life, I pray, doesn't look more like Christ than it did years ago. But I'm still extremely flawed and will be, again, throughout the side of eternity. That's part of the reality. And so then, what do we do? We realize that as we live life, we're going to be living in such a way that, well, let me put it this way, as a as pastor, I realize that there will be people that seek after Christ, and my goal is to lead them towards Christ. And, and I also realize that there may be times that people 
come see me and they see Christ through me. But at the end of the day, that's only part of the process. I want to eventually get to the point of saying, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Why? Because I'm flawed. Look at Jesus. And here's what I want to encourage you to realize. I love this, I love this father. I love this faith that he had where people let him down and he said, okay, I'm not going to walk away from it. I'm going to realize I'm going to double down and focus on Jesus. Now, there are some people here that are scarred, that are wounded because you have representatives of Jesus who have let you down. Now, first of all, I want to say as a pastor, I, I recognize that there is a degree that I represent Christ and his church in this way. And I want, to, I, I want to say sincerely, I am sorry. I want to voice the word of apology to people that somebody else should have said to you. And it's the heart of Christ to say, I'm sorry for where people have let you down. That people do not always live up to who they should be, especially spiritual leaders. And I apologize for that. And I know that's the heart of Christ, in, in I believe, speaking through me. But I also want to tell you that in the midst of that, what we see here is what God calls us to. Yes, we should have spiritual leaders who seek after to be more, more like Christ, and, and they should be that. And if they fail, we should ultimately remove them. But, but at the same time, we need to realize that our focus should be on Jesus, that, that we are not followers of his followers. We are followers of Jesus. And, and at the end of the day, you know, we need to be able to say, when somebody lets me down, be like this, this father. Okay, I'm going to go around the follower, and I'm going to go focus more, focus more fully on Jesus. I'm not going to let his followers and, and where they've let me down keep me from Jesus. Because people will fail. We are sinners. We are, none of us are perfect. None of us are going to be there the side of eternity. Jesus Christ is perfect. We will let you down. I will let you down periodically. I'm, you know, it's not that I tried. It's not that I don't concern. I'm just a flawed person. Jesus Christ will never let you down. And let me encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that, I'm, that we should always move people towards. Well, so then that's part of a biblical I love that picture here, the faith of the Father. The second thing about biblical faith is how it's described in verse 20. The disciples had asked Jesus why they failed, and they told them, because of your little faith. And, and then he told them about the faith that they were supposed to have. He said, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. He calls us to have the imperfect faith of a mustard seed. Now, this is a passage. It's got an incredible promise, but it's often not understood well. See, what it's saying here is this incredible promise. You, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, what is a mustard seed? Mustard seed is this little tiny seed. You know, it's, I mean, this size, it's way smaller than a BB. It's a little tiny seed, this, one of the smallest of seeds. And he's saying, if you had just this tiny amount of faith, you could move a mountain. What an incredible promise. Sounds awesome, right? How many, any of you moved mountains this week? No, but yet we have seen mountains moved. And the fact of the matter is, we can look at this and we can claim the promise, but I don't know we always understand it. A lot of times I see this verse and it's kind of put in motivational pro, you know, posters. You know, kind of something like this, you know, it's, the verse is up there and it's great. Faith and mustard seed, nothing is impossible. What a great promise. You know, be encouraged, go out there. And people, is, is, you know, kind of this idea of, you know, go try incredible things, just believe. My, my favorite motivational poster is this one. I have a mustard seed and I'm not afraid to use it. I mean, I like that one. I, that, that one's pretty cool. Um, and I've heard a lot of people interpret this almost as this self-help, but we can do anything. And according to this view, 
if we have a great challenge, if you just had enough faith, you could accomplish anything. And if something, the miracle isn't being done, it's because you don't have enough faith. You have doubt. And if you just didn't have doubt, well, then miracles would happen. Now, here's the problem, is that view makes the focus more on your faith than on God. Why did something happen? Because I had enough faith. It's ultimately about you. Why does he say it's a mustard seed? Because the whole idea is it isn't about, it isn't about enough faith. I mean, I think of even real life situations. I remember a guy that I knew that um, he had, he had terminal cancer and, and he prayed that God would heal and he took this passage like this and he said, okay, if God, if I have the faith of a mustard seed, God, nothing is impossible. God can heal me. I just need to prove that I have no doubt. He sold his life insurance and, and said, I have no net now. It proves that I have total faith. And he died and his family was, was, was wrecked because of it financially. See, that's not what God is calling us to here. It's not what the Bible is teaching. To understand what it's teaching, well, let's go back to the first rule of, script, of, of interpreting the Bible. The first rule of interpreting the Bible is Scripture interprets Scripture. And so what we do is we look at the immediate context, the verses around it. We also look at other passages that teach the same idea to see if it explains it. In this case, there is a very good explanation. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 9. And in Mark's telling of the same story, what we read is the man comes and asks Jesus to heal the son. Um, and, and after telling Jesus about the problem, the father said, you know, uh, um, you know if, you, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds back. He said, if you can, kind of like you're asking me, do you really think that I can? All things are possible for the one who believes. Same quote that we have here. And now look at what the father does behind. You know, he says, if I can, and the father's response is when Jesus challenges him as he says this, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that. Because that's the kind of faith that often I have. A faith that I believe, but I have doubt. See, when you look at what Jesus is teaching here about the faith of the mustard seed, it's the same story. It's teaching the same truth. It's just through different angles. They're both teaching the same idea, that the faith of a mustard seed is this kind of faith, a little bit of faith that, that's struggling. It's not without doubts. It has doubts. It's a faith that believes Jesus enough to, to say, God, I'm coming to you, and I'm coming to you even with my doubts. Help my unbelief. I love that because, again, that's the kind of faith that I often have, that I think many of us often have, and that's enough. God doesn't call us to find more faith. It's a faith that perseveres and is honest even with our doubts, with our struggles. The Father's not claiming to have unshakable faith. He's totally acknowledging, no, I have doubts. And yet he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to not only say, here's my faith, and fill the gap of my faith. Why? Because he realized that his faith was lacking, but because he was, it wasn't the focus of his faith, the focus was the one he had faith in. And the one that he was, had faith in was so great that even a mustard seed of faith was enough. See, the important thing isn't the size of our faith, it's the object of our faith. A very small faith and a very personal and a very great God is more than enough. You know why we often struggle? Because we have not enough faith in God. We put too much faith in the other things. And so why do I worry? Why do I worry? Because, because the fact of the matter, I'm worried because I'm looking at that and I see the disease that I'm facing or the person that's opposing me or, or the threat against me. Those are more real to me than God's promises. Why do I struggle to forgive? Be, well, because the sin against me is more real to me than the way that I have been forgiven by God. 
and his power to give me forgiveness that I don't have. The problem is not the size of my faith, but it's the object of my faith. And so if we have this faith that we recognize, okay, that it's not about me, I'm just bringing a mustard seed, I'm bringing it before God, and it's a great God, you see, by very nature, that also means that there's, we're comfortable with our humility, with our humility of our faith. God, I, I help my unbelief. And it's a faith then that expressed through confident dependence. Now again, remember when the father came to the disciples, they tried to heal the boy on their own and they failed. Um, you know, and they were confident in themselves. And, and they, tr they had enough to try. But the problem was too much self-confidence. Now again, let's go back to Mark's version of the same story. Uh, the disciples had come to Jesus and they said, why did we fail? And Jesus' response was basically, you should have prayed. Uh, you know, this, how could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You should have prayed. Now, it sounds simple, but it's a really basic idea that we can move, you know, we can miss. The, yeah, the idea is we can't do, we can't do Jesus' work without Jesus' power. And a lot of times we could say, well, Jesus does this, but part of that is a dependence means that we recognize we're, we're, we're in a sense plugged in. It's kind of, you know, here this, this time of year that we're working and outside and we can say, okay, many of you were working outside yesterday and I, so I brought one of my power tools and, and uh, okay, this is you know, great and cut down, you know, some leaves and trim and, and this, is, this is great. So I, I kind of put it in here and I turn it on and, and nothing's going on. And he said, what's, what's wrong? I mean, this, this, this is powerful. And this is, and if, and if I get this in, which I can't do now, I should have done this earlier. Fact is, this other side isn't plugged in. I can have a great tool, but what makes the tool powerful? It's powered in the electric. It's powered, it's got to be plugged in. And a lot of times we could say, well, I've got this, and God called me to do this, and God, well, and the whole idea is that if I really understand this idea of faith, I realize I bring my little bit of faith, help my unbelief. I bring my limited ability before God and I say, God, here I am. And he says, okay, if you're plugged in, if you're plugged in, I can take a tool and I can give it incredible power, but you gotta be plugged in. And the problem is, is that a lot of times we're not plugged in because we go out and do ministry and we think we could do it on our own. And we're kind of just like, you know, if I take it out and I'm trying to trim down bushes with just this itself, it doesn't work very well. I might eventually get it, but it's my power with the tool <laughs> doesn't work. And when you think about this, this is a lot of our problems. See, what to happen, Jesus looks at it and says, not only that you tried to do it on your own, you didn't even talk to me about it. You didn't ask me for help. You said, we got it. And we can do the same thing in our lives. You know, we can go through, I don't need to pray about my job today. I've got it. I'm, I'm trained. I'm succeeding. I, I, I know how to do this. We can look at it and say, I don't need to pray about this decision. I don't need to pray about this relationship. I've got the wisdom. I know how to do it. I can do it on my own. I don't need to pray about my parenting. You know, I've got that area nailed. I don't need to pray about my marriage. You know, I know what I'm doing. You know, and so we go through life and we try to fix it on our own. And then what happens is then there's a crisis and we come running to God and we say, God, help me, like the disciples. And God's saying, no, I don't want you to just come when you're just broken yeah, that's why you fail. You don't have power. You know, we're putting our life on autopilot and thinking we can do it on our own. And he's saying, no, I want you to come to me when things are going well. You know, when you're coming off the mountaintop, when you're experiencing the periods of blessing, to remember all these times that we never get to the point where we don't need God's grace. We don't need his help. So are we coming to him just when life falls apart? Are we coming to him in this dependent faith, even, even when things are good? Do we know that we need him all the time? 
So the challenge is, how do we live with this kind of faith, this kind of messy faith, in a sense? A faith that's not just in the Yeah, we want the experience. We want the mountaintop. We want, we want that time alone with God on a daily basis. That's wonderful. But how do we have this, this messy faith that brings it into real life, that brings it into the demands and brokenness of life, into our life, into the lives around us? How do we do it? Well, look at what we see here. If we want to see God's glory, there is a place that, yes, we retreat from the world for a while. We have the experiences. But you know where God's glory is most fully revealed? On the mountaintop, it was when Jesus was revealed. Here, in this story, where is it revealed? When Jesus heals the boy. When Jesus speaks and he brings healing to the boy, it's revealed in, the, in his compassion and his grace and his deliverance. God's grace and glory is revealed and transformed lives. I mean, we prayed that God's glory would be here, that we'd experience. Did we experience it? Yeah. And even more, more fully, when we got to hear that testimony, when we got to see a baptism, when we, we hear a story of God answering prayer and changing someone's life, that's where it's revealed. That's what we should pursue. That's where the ultimate glory of God is that, that we want in our lives. And so how do we make it personal? I just want to ask the question, what does this messy faith look like in your life? Well, first of all, for the question is, are you letting God speak into your life? And so that it's not just, okay, well, I'm up here and, and here's my devotional life or here's my church life. Or, you know, are you bringing it into Sunday, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? Are you bringing it into your home? Are you letting God change your marriage, your parenting, your work? Are you letting him change every aspect of your life? Are you, are you bringing faith into transforming you in little things and the big things? For some, it might just be starting and saying, God, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. I, want, I give you the right to change me. But then as we grow in faith in Jesus Christ, it's learning to apply this faith into the mess and brokenness of everyday life and letting him change us one thing at a time. And then as we represent him to realize that, that yes, he is the son and we look to him, his glory is there, but we are now also called to reflect his glory, to be the light of the world who reflects him. And so that we engage with people and we love on people and we say, okay, how do I now bring that light to the world so that I can be a part of bringing transforming power, seeing him change lives, transforming lives. I want to be a part of that. It's a church and, and whether it's a ministry in the church or whether it's praying for friends and witnessing to them or being used in one way or another, be a part of that because God is working. His glory is working and you know what? I want to experience that not only in the mountaintop, I want to be able to bring that into the valley, into the real life of my life and of the lives of others so that we increasingly see his glory at work in our world. That's, that's our pursuit. I hope we can, you want to go there with me? I hope you do. Because that's where I want to go. And that's where I pray that our church goes together. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.